From Advisory Board, we are bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. In June of 2020, we released an episode that detailed why racism is a healthcare issue. The combination of global protests in the wake of George Floyd's murder and the spotlight on inequities during an international health crisis made this our most popular episode to date. And after what felt like the entire healthcare industry made pledges to combat racism and improve equity, I wanted to check in on where the industry stands today and determine just how much further we have to go. To do that, I've brought three equity experts, Carl Whitemarsh, Nishale Simmons, and Darby Sullivan. Hey, Carl, Nishale, and Darby, welcome to Radio Advisory. Thanks for having us, Ray. It's always fun to be here. It's good to be back. No pressure. This is just the second time we've had a full cast of characters on the podcast. Three people on an interview is, is kind of tricky, but I, I believe that we can do it. We're going to be talking about a kind of a tough subject today that I know personally and professionally matters to all four of us. This episode is actually coming out just over a year after George Floyd was killed and on the heels of a sentencing that officially declared that death a murder. And we all know what happened last year. That specific event sparked global outrage in 2022. But it wasn't the only event that brought racism and health equity into the spotlight. Darby, what were we seeing at this time last year? Yeah, you're right. So the racial justice uprising from last summer was such a powerful spark. But the way I like to think about it is that the matches were already there, ready to go. So I know it goes without saying that you know, the stark racial inequities that we saw when the pandemic hit, both clinically and financially, those were so dramatic mm. and so terrifying that I think it was something that leaders across the industry couldn't ignore any longer and more broadly, our culture couldn't ignore any longer. And I think we've seen that reflected in some of the steps that the Biden administration is taking now. What the pandemic and in combination with the racial uprising last summer did for equity is what it did for a number of other aspects across our industry. So it kind of took the floor away from under our feet about, you know, what was considered normal and what we could expect from our industry. So I think we're at this place now where we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel or the worst of the pandemic. And our industry could really go one of two ways when it comes to the future of health equity. I don't think that we could ever go back to where we were before, where we could claim that we didn't really know the extent of the impact of racism in healthcare. But hmm. it's also not guaranteed that the momentum that we have right now is actually going to translate into long-term structural shifts. I think you're exactly right, that there is momentum right now, but it's a question mark about how long that momentum is going to last. If I think about the change that we've seen in the last 12 to 18 months, I think every major company was kind of forced to reconsider their actions, their policies. And we saw a lot of them make open and transparent pledges against racism. What kind of commitments did we actually see the healthcare industry make? Some of the more impactful commitments I saw over the past year and a half was 
know, obviously the CDC declared racism as a public health crisis. Mm-hmm. The AHA in particular stood out against anti-Asian racism. And the AMA recently released this, you know, gargantuan 80-page strategic plan about advancing racial justice. So we saw a lot of, you know, major industry players taking a, a big commitment or a big stance. But what about some of the more frontline players? What about the actual providers, the health plans, the life sciences companies? You know, actually, in this case, commitment might be too strong of a word. What we saw a lot of was press releases, a lot of leaders restating their mission to care for all people. But, you know, to me, a commitment means an action step, and Hmm. not everyone did that. And I actually think that that's reflected in some of the feedback that our clinical leader members gave us in terms of what are the biggest barriers getting in the way of them making progress. And overwhelmingly, they said, knowing where to start and how to make progress. So turning a commitment or a press release into concrete action steps that are taking us closer to progress sustained in the long term. And I'm guessing that you're going to tell me that that's actually the biggest thing you want to see change in 2021, in 2022, and beyond. And I think part of the problem, part of the reasoning behind why we're seeing press releases without action is that a lot of frontline leaders don't actually understand what they're working towards. So how would you actually characterize an anti-racist organization? One of the things that you have to start with is really the accountability piece. And sometimes that accountability doesn't just look like what goals are we putting out there, but acknowledging that racism is an issue in healthcare and that it's not just the lives that people lead when they're not within the health system. There are absolutely disparities at the point of care that we know Mm -hmm. based on data. And I think that there is some hesitancy still to accept that even as we're having more and more conversations about it. I think people don't want to take that individual responsibility to say that I too could be perpetuating Hmm. racism within the healthcare industry. And that's really hard. And I also get there's that other side of it where is this a liability for me to be honest about how the organization might be perpetuating racism within the institution. So there's definitely that first piece of just accepting this is here and, you know, working from that knowing. Yeah, I love what you said, Michelle, that it's really a journey. It's like for any any individual that's on their journey to become anti-racist, the beginning is sometimes the hardest part by, you know, starting to accept, you know, what is, what's there within our organization, what's there within ourselves that we want to unlearn. But I don't want to say like, every time I see something from like the CDC or from a hospital organization, anytime I see a statement of support or commitment, I actually, I do celebrate because I don't think like we would never have dreamed a few years ago that we would be seeing this level of vocal support for anti-racism and for equity. So I think it's something to celebrate. But I also think, you know, what I always tell the members that I work with is that, you know, we can't solve structural problems without structural solutions. Mm -hmm. So to truly be an anti-racist organization, we have to go beyond the statement, beyond, you know, the book club or the implicit bias training, which is not to imply that those things aren't valuable. And we do them at the advisory board but they cannot be the end. You know, I think what I push members to to do is to not become complacent and think that what you're doing is good enough. Yeah. For me, I always think about anti-racism in general, whether it's in healthcare or not, as having actively anti-racist policies. And I think you're right. It starts from recognition of the problem. But I love what you said, Darby, that 
we have to actually have a structural response, which means we have to take a hard look at the policies and the procedures that we have. Just to pile on here, I would say that an anti-racist organization is bringing the same level of rigor to their work to become an anti-racist organization that they would for any for any strategic priority that they consider mission critical. And that means the same level of rigor in their strategy and their goals and their accountability structures, leadership structures, you name it across the board, that same level of rigor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It strikes me that last year we spent a lot more time going into the details of why we see health disparities in different communities, especially in the Black community. And I think, Darby, you had actually said that in our home city of Washington, D.C., there was a 15-year difference in life expectancy for Black and Brown Americans. And as I was reflecting on last year's episode, Michele, you asked a question that kind of stopped me in my tracks. You had this philosophical moment where you asked our listeners, are we okay with life expectancy being so much shorter for Black people? Do you feel like that philosophical question has been answered in the last year? No. Um, I think there's a lot more work to do to be able to um, respond adequately to that question. I think some people are probably starting to grapple with that statistic, but there's just so much more work to do that I, I don't, my answer has to be no, but I'm hopeful that we might be on the on the right track. We're talking about this challenge of a pledge not actually being an action, a press release not actually being a policy change. And we see that with efforts to actively address racism. But I actually see that with health equity more broadly. Of course, leaders tell us in the abstract that they want to lead an equitable organization. But again, I'm not sure they know what that means in practice. What does it actually mean to lead an equitable organization in this industry? Yeah. So the way I like to think about it is that there are three key pillars for any organization across the healthcare industry that wants to have a real investment in health equity. The first is creating and supporting a diverse workforce with an inclusive and equitable culture. The second being about ensuring equitable outcomes for patients. And the third being more broadly about how are you addressing the community-wide social determinants of health and their root causes that are leading to inequitable outcomes. So the thing to know about these three pillars, the workforce, the patients, and the community, is that they're deeply intertwined. So, you know, for example, we are we ask our workforce to do really tough things on the front lines every single day. And Now we're saying you also have to root out your own implicit bias and you have to deliver patient-centered care and meet social needs. To be able to do that well, they have to have their own needs met. So they have to feel like they have Mm. equitable growth opportunities and mentorship within their own organization. They have to be actually paid a living wage and so that they're not worrying about housing and food themselves. And so if they have their own needs met as workforce, but also as sometimes patients and also as members of our community they're better able to deliver that holistic and culturally responsive care that we're asking them to do. Those three pillars actually represent huge 
areas and huge challenges when it comes to the healthcare system. And what I hear you saying is that all three need to exist in order for an organization to actually be advancing equity. But is that something that organizations understand? Do they get that equity is actually the sum of all three of these initiatives? You know, I think in a lot of cases that we might be conflating and thinking that the ensuring equitable outcomes for patients is kind of the lane that we need to focus in and not spending enough time on the other two components of what are we doing in the community and how are we supporting the workforce. I will say, being a workforce researcher, that I know that people have made investments in the workforce, but it does tend to focus more on the diversity and representation of staff. And then Mm -hmm. I would also say diversity and representation of staff at the front line and would also add probably not necessarily in the roles where people can kind of go up the, the ladder. So I would ask, what positions do we see this quote unquote diverse representation right. in? Back to Darby's point about is this, a, are we putting people in roles where there's a living wage? And so <laughs> it doesn't really matter if you're bringing a lot of people into the organization and then they can't actually move up um, and they don't want to be there. You know, like, is this a place that I actually want to work in? So there's definitely um, some room for for improvement on emphasizing all pieces and then also making sure that we're not just kind of taking that programmatic approach and thinking hmm. about what does equity look like across these things. And this is why the first step in our long-term ambition is actually understanding what the ambition is. So let's assume for a moment that our listeners have got it. They understand the three pillars of equity and that there's nuance even within any one of these things. But my next question is, how can they actually grade the progress that they've made so far? The truth is across any one of these three pillars of health equity, workforce, outcomes for patients, and community an organization actually needs to develop their maturity across what are really eight dimensions of equity. So Hmm. that's things like governance, social needs, and community outreach, data collection, data analysis, strong, measurable, transformational goals, developing your staff's knowledge, skills, and attitudes, ensuring you're delivering culturally sensitive care, and of course, workforce diversity, equity, and inclusion. And across any one of these eight dimensions, an organization could conceivably be just getting started or even moving the market forward. And I think, quite frankly, what we've seen is that many organizations are really just that, just getting started. And if they are just getting started, how can we help them prioritize their efforts, right? I hear folks have these big goals that, if I'm honest, sound a little bit like, I want to save the world. But that's not the most actionable step. So where does someone even begin? There is no one size fits all answer to that question. When any leader thinks about, okay, what can our role in advancing equity be? And you know, being an anti-racist organization, that deeply depends on the folks within their organization, on the patients who they're they're aiming to to serve, on the communities that they're they're living within. And so there's no, you know, there's no one right answer because it's so dependent on the folks who should be, you know, the community members, the patients, the folks who should be leading these efforts. And so one of the things that I know Carl and I have been, have been researching and talking about 
lately is how essential data is Hmm. as the backbone of any equity initiative, just to get a sense of, okay, what is our specific problem? We might know that, for example, we have a national maternal health equity crisis, but what does it look like at our system across specific sites? And Hmm. I think, honestly, this goes back to Carl's point about rigor. Most organizations, when they think about equity initiatives, are thinking more on a, you know, a pilot level approach or community benefit approach, rather than thinking, I'm, I need to make this as effective and impactful as I want my service line rationalization strategy to be as Mm. I want my care variation reduction strategy to be. And as simple as it sounds, it all goes back to collecting and analyzing quantitative and importantly, qualitative data. I think I know why folks tend to do that. So I'm going to channel one of our listeners who might push back on this a little bit. They want to see their initiatives generate results. And that is really hard when we're talking about something as big as health equity, where we're talking about something as big as unwinding structural racism in healthcare. And so they tend to look towards smaller wins that maybe aren't the big bold things that we would like to see the industry take. How do you actually help somebody understand what the right goals even are? I kind of, and I'm curious others' thoughts on this too. I think about them, like you have to do both in tandem. So you have to, you have to start small to, to start flexing those muscles and to start building relationships with your community and to start building a team that can focus on this. So you have to start on a programmatic level to some degree to get better at this. But you have to always have, you know, that longer term saving the world aim as your North Star to convince folks that, you know, might not trust you in the community that you are here for the long term, Hmm. even if it, it takes a while. And I think said a different way, it's important to balance those short and long-term goals. So Ray, you mentioned quick wins. I think quick wins are so important in this work. Darby, you use the phrase flex your muscles. It builds community trust. It gives all stakeholders a touchstone to come back to. It's a reminder that yes, we can make progress and sustain it in the long-term. So that, that speaks to the importance of short-term wins here. But when it comes to long-term goals, we know that to make progress on reducing these disparities, it can take, it, this, this is likely a years-long endeavor. And when it comes to long-term goals, we should absolutely be setting our sights towards the more transformational end of the spectrum. I want to add to that, you know, we're talking about how do you prioritize, if I'm trying to figure out what my health equity strategy is, and is there something that we want to throw our weight behind, right? But there's also the piece that Darby brought up, like, I want to give this the same rigor as my care variation reduction strategy and all of mm-hmm. that. Health equity should be embedded within those existing strategies. And so sometimes it's not adding an additional thing. It's looking at what are we already doing? If we're already making investments and in, let's say opening up um, a, a new facility, how are we making sure that we are not exacerbating existing disparities. So I would also ask that people consider how are we embedding equity as a lens in our decision making as we move forward. Um, right. So we may need to you know, look, look to the past and see where we already have room for progress and what the gaps are. But then also, across everything that we're doing, there's an opportunity. And I would encourage all executives when I look at my priorities, and I would imagine all of them can have an equity lens to the things that they care about, whether I'm the CIO, the CMO, the CSO. 
I think that's exactly right. In the same way that you need to both think about short and long-term outcomes, you also need to balance ways that you're embedding equity into everything that you do while also making targeted and substantive investments that solve specific gaps and specific problems that you see across any of these three pillars. And it's the difference between having a discrete line item or pillar in your strategic plan that's equity versus embedding equity into each individual line item or pillar within your strategic plan. And this isn't the first time we've said something like this. I'll channel our colleague John League for a second, who gets angry every time somebody asks, what should my telehealth strategy be? Because we go, hold on, telehealth is a means to achieving a whole host of different aims. And I think in the same regard, health equity can't be something that's done off to the side. It can't be something that is given to one person or one small team. It has to be a way that we are thinking about everything. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. Advisory Board's team of over 200 experts is constantly tracking and thinking through the latest developments in healthcare. We unfortunately can't get all of our experts on this podcast to tell you what they're seeing and thinking, but they are regularly sharing their perspectives on the Advisory Board blog. Check out advisory.com slash blog to read their latest posts on proposed rules, what physicians want, AI, telehealth, and more. That's advisory.com slash blog. Darby, you mentioned that there is no kind of single answer. There is no blueprint. And I think that might be frustrating for some people who are looking for the playbook of steps that they can take. And while there is no blueprint, I still think that we can help our listeners understand what to do and maybe more importantly, what not to do. So I want to hear from each of you. Based on your individual research, what is the biggest thing you want to help our listeners avoid? So when it comes to well-intentioned initiatives that not only fall short, but actually can perpetuate harm, cultural competency is a model that often comes up in conversations of equity. And it is, for me, the number one thing that comes to mind in terms of a well-intentioned initiative that I think we should actually put to rest. And that's Mm. because cultural competency often relies so heavily on stereotypes that can really Mm. perpetuate harm against the very people for whom we're trying to advance more equitable outcomes. So instead of cultural competency, what should organizations be focused on? I always think of cultural competency in terms of it being both elusive and illusory. It is like running in a race where the finish line is always moving to think that we can become competent in an identity that is not our own. And it is illusory in that it's really a fool's errand and should not even be our aspiration. So you asked, what should our aspiration be? It's really cultural humility. So this is much more than just a word choice difference. It's actually a very powerful mindset shift that can Hmm. then really dictate and influence how you think about your own identity, but importantly, how you interact with others. And cultural humility acknowledges that 
this process that we're going through to understand our own identities and you know that that ongoing learning and introspection it's just that it's ongoing and does not have a discrete endpoint like cultural competency we're not going to reach competency and then our work is done that's right rather cultural humility which can be implemented really both at the individual but more importantly at the institution level recognizes the inherent value in everyone and de-emphasizes othering other people which is such a big part of a cultural competency model. Hmm. Yeah. What I also appreciate about that point Carl is that I think that shift also means that we don't overemphasize trainings as the solution. The trainings and conversations are really important for the mindset shifts that you're talking about, but we are still going to inherently have bias. Like we, we have brains, we're biased. We need to redesign the processes mm-hmm. to mitigate them. And so, yes, the trainings have to happen. We're not saying no to that, but we need to look at the processes too. And I think that the, the idea of cultural humility over cultural competency helps to remind us of that. And it brings us back to the theme of for a, for a structural challenge like racism or health disparities, we need structural solutions as well. And so that's why a workforce improvement such as training is not going to help us solve what is undoubtedly a structural problem. Hmm. Darby, what about you? What is something that you hear from your members that you just just kind of grind your gears? Well, I love my members, um, but <laughs> we all do. We all do. <laughs> we all love our, all of our members. But one thing that one pitfall that I've heard across the many years that I've been researching specifically the social determinants of health is that I often hear leaders saying, we have a social determinants of health strategy. We, for example, connect our patients to a food bank if they're experiencing food insecurity, or we have a partnership with a local shelter for our patients who are experiencing housing insecurity. To me, that conflates two things. Social needs, which is you know an individual need of, of better housing, of affordable food, and the broader structural community conditions that are creating the need in the first place. Hmm. Those are the true social determinants of health. So what I like to push our members to do is realize that they should continue to meet the individual patient need that they see. They absolutely must continue to do that. That's a non-negotiable, but they can't think that they have a robust strategy to address the social determinants of health unless they're also thinking along the lines of, hey, how am I making sure that my community it isn't a food desert anymore? Or how right. am I contributing to the actual affordable housing stock in this community? What am I doing to, to make that structural change? It also comes back to Carl's point about you can't assume that there is an end point. We are right. not talking about achieving health equity, period, at least not on any sort of a, a, a timeline that I can think of. We're talking about advancing health equity. So it's a huge red flag for me when somebody says, oh, we've got this program or we have this person who's tagged to it. Yeah. On the, the programmatic piece, one thing that I worry about and would challenge people to do when it comes to all strategies, but I'm talking specifically about talent management is actually asking for our processes, whether that's career pathing, succession planning, hiring, who was this designed for, like as the default? 
And how can we shift that to center marginalized groups in the redesign of some of Hmm. those processes? And I think the challenge is, and this is kind of where mindsets come in, that people will balk at that because they'll think, well, then are you disadvantaging me? Because we're saying that we're centering, you know, black employees or we're centering our LGBTQ employees or whatever the case may be. But we have to be willing to do that. And I think that when you redesign processes with that in mind, it actually does benefit everyone. So it's not to say that now this process has been redesigned and, you know, it's only going to benefit like black folks in our hiring process. No, that's not true. We're actually going to make probably better hiring decisions. We've seen Mm -hmm. case studies where people do that and you actually reduce first year turnover because you are being more thoughtful um, about the, about your hiring strategy. So that's also where I would push people. How are we actually centering those marginalized groups within our workforce, within our patient population, our community in the way that we design things, not, Oh, let's create this separate thing over here. That is for our black employees, which is fine to do too, but it's like a a both thing. And you're getting at exactly what my next point was going to be. If we just kind of scratch the surface on what not to do, we also need to make sure we're arming our listeners with what they should focus on. And I want the three of you to be, to be willing to turn up the heat when you answer this question. When it comes to the action items that you want our listeners to take, whether it comes to actually acting on anti-racist policies or actually advancing an equity strategy for the organization, what do you want to make sure leaders and executives are actually doing? Don't settle for neutrality in this like with your people. So we've gotten to a point where a lot of people have made the statements and they're saying, this is what we care about as an organization. But where the rubber meets the road is when you have the people who are the detractors and you choose to allow them to stay Hmm. within the organization and there is no penalty, there's no consequence for doing that because, oh, we, we think we need to bring everyone along and it's okay if you're not on board. So I would ask, is it okay if people aren't on board and if it's not okay i mean if it is okay for you if people aren't on board then maybe health equity isn't a priority for you like that's that's just how i feel about it um i love that michelle coming in with a bold (laughs) action item you 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 successfully (laughs) turned up the heat and i think to illustrate that let's say you know take any strategic priority if there was a lead if there was a staff member let alone a leader that was not willing to engage on what the organization has determined is a strategic priority, that would be a sign that that person is not a cultural fit for that organization. And it would be treated as a performance management issue and could Mm -hmm. ultimately lead to that, to the outcome being that person being managed out of the organization, given their demonstrated resistance or unwillingness to engage on that. And I think that that is the way that healthcare organizations need to be thinking about this issue. Well, you're definitely doing what I asked and turning up the heat. Carl, is that also your action step or do you want to add another kind of bold one for our audience? I'm speaking specifically to white leaders in healthcare right now. And I would say you need to start to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. We are socialized in the American society 
from a young age to not want to engage on issues of race. And that can trigger extreme feelings of discomfort. And I think we need to embrace that and quite frankly, get over it. And we need to understand that in the course of of work to advance equity, there's inevitably going to be missteps that we commit. Mm -hmm. And we need to be open to hearing feedback from members of marginalized communities when they tell us that we've misstepped and Mm -hmm. take that feedback at face value and leverage it to course correct and do better in the future. And Carl, your point also uh, brought up another issue for me that I'm starting to hear and experience myself of when white people do get uncomfortable in these conversations, do we center that discomfort or do we center the comfort of folks that have been underrepresented or marginalized within the workplace? I do think that we are going to have to ask questions about how are we creating more spaces for dominant staff, um, white staff to have spaces to unpack all of the things that you have to learn about your own identity and, you know, what what does it mean to be white now and these feelings I'm having, I'm feeling guilty and all of that, because it's going to lead to some unproductive engagement within this work. So I'm like, I would ask organizations, how are you prepared to handle that instead of brushing it under the rug or trying to turn down the heat on conversations because you just want to make sure that people feel maybe too comfortable. All right, Darby, no pressure. What's the big action step you want to see from our listeners in 2021 and beyond? One thing that I think that we haven't talked about yet, which is kind of the elephant in the room for equity is the business case. And I'll be the first to admit, like the calculus of the business case for advancing equity changes depending on what type of organization you are and what's your business model and your involvement and risk. And if any member comes to me, I can make you a business case for advancing (laughs) equity. I will do that for you. But we have to admit that some cases are just more compelling for others. And what that means when I'm thinking about, you know, we're so lucky to be working with the leaders of this industry that can that can make decisions in their day to day to to, to change this. So, you know, for leaders that, that say, hey, my business case doesn't support this, that doesn't mean you sit this one out. That's your cue to say, actually, I'm going to use my leverage and my influence in the lead in the industry to say, hey, board members, hold me accountable for workforce DEI or health plans that I work with if I'm a provider organization. Please put equity into my quality ratings. I would love leaders to see the power that they have to to secure a business case beyond just the mission. And I don't want to sound like a broken record, but you know, 2020 has opened the door up for real change. And it hasn't guaranteed that though. So mm-hmm. my question to the leaders who we work with every day is, you know, are you going to maintain focus on DEI even when it's out of the news? You know, what are you going to do today to find those structural solutions and work across the industry to shift the status quo? And that is exactly what all four of us are going to be watching for is how leaders move from that pledge, that verbal commitment into actual anti-racist action that moves us towards a more equitable healthcare system. Well, Darby, Carl, Michele, as always, thank you so much for coming on Radio Advisory. Thanks for having us. Take care. Thanks. We'll be right back with what our research team is watching this week.
As we enter a COVID recovery period in the United States, we are tracking potentially significant mergers and acquisitions. One Medical's decision to acquire Iora Health indicates an unprecedented step towards demographic diversification, at least for these kind of membership-style platforms that have traditionally stuck to very niche populations. Both companies provide primary care. One Medical targets young, tech-savvy patients seeking more of a concierge model, while Iora serves Medicare patients and takes capitation. One Medical may see the acquisition as an opportunity to feed its patients into Iora clinics once they become eligible for Medicare. And they might use the partnership to deepen its value-based care presence. But we're curious to learn how much they plan to integrate two very different models and two very distinct brands. Last week, the FDA made the controversial decision to approve a new Alzheimer's therapy, which could have serious implications for the pharmaceutical manufacturing pipeline and for Medicare spending. The FDA approved Biogen's Alzheimer's drug, Adjuhelm. But they did so on the condition that the company conduct a clinical trial to determine that the drug actually leads to cognitive benefits. And that's because earlier trials were inconclusive on the drug's benefits. And it also found that many patients experience side effects. Now, some experts still hope that this signals a breakthrough in Alzheimer's treatment and that it will motivate more companies to throw their hat in the ring. But others worry that the seemingly lower bar to prove efficacy, plus an estimated $56,000 per year price tag, doesn't exactly bode well for patients or for payers. With the majority of America's 6 million Alzheimer's patients covered by Medicare, we're keeping an eye out for how this expensive medication might influence the conversation around drug pricing. And this news is a good reminder that six months into the Biden presidency, the FDA still has no appointed commissioner. Statutory limits require the current acting commissioner, Janet Woodcock, to leave in August, which gives Biden just two months to find a replacement who will play a critical role in shaping the future of the life sciences industry. So remember, as always, we're here to help. Welcome, Darby, Carl, and Michele. Good to be back. Thanks for having us, Ray. Michele, you have to say something too. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to say something like, real. real. You have to say something normal. 